reside in the realm of mythology. What you are is a follower of Eusebius. It's in the Gospel. A reading from An Unpublished History by Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, 1832 A.D. And I'm going to read it exactly as written. And it came to pass, when I was seventeen years of age, I called again upon the Lord, and he showed unto me a heavenly vision. For behold, an angel of the Lord came, and stood before me, and it was by night, and he called me by name, and he said that the Lord had forgiven me my sins, and he revealed unto me that in the town of Manchester, Ontario County, N.Y., there was plates of gold, upon which there was engravings, which was engraven by Moroni and his fathers, the servants of the living God in ancient days and deposited by the commandments of God, and kept by the power thereof, and that I should go and get them. And he revealed unto me many things concerning the inhabitants of the earth, which since have been revealed in commandments and revelations. And it was on the twenty-second day of Sept, A.D. 1822. And thus he appeared unto me three times in one night, and once on the next day. And then I immediately went to the place, and I found where the plates was deposited, as the angel of the Lord had commanded me and straightway made three attempts to get them, and then being exceedingly frightened, I supposed it had been a dream of vision, but when I considered, I knew that it was not. Therefore I cried unto the Lord in the agony of my soul, Why can I not obtain them? Behold, the angel appeared unto me again, and said unto me, You have not kept the commandments of the Lord which I gave unto you, therefore you cannot now obtain them, for the time is not yet fulfilled. Therefore thou wast left unto temptation, that thou mightest be made acquainted with the power of the adversary, Therefore repent and call on the Lord. Thou shalt be forgiven, and in his own due time thou shalt obtain them. For now I had been tempted of the adversary, and sought the place to obtain riches, and kept not the commandment that I should have an eye single to the glory of God. Therefore I was chastened, and sought diligently to obtain the plates, and obtained them not until I was twenty-one years of age. That was a reading from an unpublished book by Joseph Smith sounding like Paul Metzler from the election movie giving that speech in the gym. I know what it is to fight hard and win, like when we almost went to state last fall and I threw the fourth quarter pass against Westside for the touchdown that won the game by three points. I won't let you down like I didn't then. I promise we can all score a winning touchdown together. Vote Paul Metzler for president. We haven't really talked about Mormonism at any length so far, and we haven't really talked about old Joe, which is a shame. Because he is an incredible figure. He is basically Jones from the world Jones made. But the Mormon religion, if we want to look at it as antiseptically as possible, it's a Christian heresy whose original purpose was to slam the brakes on the developments going on within American Christianity of the time. To freeze Christian doctrine like a fly in amber, so that now and forever, Christianity would always mean the religion of the camp revivals, of personal confession, of communal prayer, of sacramental meetings, and what was seen as the simple faith of the primitive church, the Church of Christ. It was like a frontier Methodism, basically, with the main difference being that it emphasized so-called latter-day revelation and prophecy. And one of the main ideas behind Mormonism, originally, was that all the contemporary disputes over doctrine would be set aside. The Trinity was now to be a settled issue, adult baptism now a settled issue. 
In fact, we can look to the famous contemporary review of the Book of Mormon by Alexander Campbell that talks about this. He said of Joseph Smith, quote, He decides all the great controversies, infant baptism, ordination, the Trinity, regeneration, repentance, justification, the fall of man, the atonement, transubstantiation, fasting, penance, church government, religious experience, the call to the ministry, the general resurrection, eternal punishment, who may baptize, and even the question of Freemasonry, Republican government, and the rights of man. End quote. As he says, every error and almost every truth discussed in New York for the previous 10 years. And that was really the point, to settle these issues for the sake of purity and revivalism. It's a naive construct, and that's been commented on many times. The original Mormonism looks like a reaction by a sparsely educated yet zealous youth to the religious awakening of the time. And it would only be somewhat later, when Joseph Smith began to take himself more seriously as a prophet and went progressively more insane, that the religion morphed into something very different. And we see that clearly with things like the King Follett sermon, where he says, among other things, that God once lived on earth as a man. But we talk about the original purpose of Mormonism because the Mormon religion is actually a good case study for the theory of Christianity being born in the second century. And I have said, and I still believe, that Mormonism can be one of the top world religions by the end of this century, even though they've had some issues lately with their growth numbers. Now, the reason I say this is not because of their aggressive proselytizing or their considerable financial resources. You know, Scientology has those things, and I don't know, at their current rate of growth, Scientology might have to start looking at becoming a digital-only religion soon. I think the actual strength of Mormonism lies in the fact that it boasts additional authoritative scriptures that are boldly equated with the Jewish and Christian Bibles, and Mormons have been very consistent with that from the beginning. You know, there's no equivocating, no lack of confidence, and the result is that even though many believing Christians tend to scoff at the Mormon faith, there's always got to be a small element of doubt that they have about possibly not having complete scriptures because they're missing these Mormon texts. You know, a believing Christian might think, I don't need the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants. I don't need all those so-called additional revelations or second witnesses. I'm good with just the Old and New Testaments. Or am I? You know, I, I am good just sticking with the Old and New Testaments. Or am I? Yeah, 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 I should be. Or should I be? So it's, it's pretty genius. But, but why I bring this up, Joseph Smith, in our reading, gave the backstory for the Mormon religion. And as far as we can tell, everything he said there was a lie. And I said in episode one that determining the day one origin of any religion is like holding an object over a singularity. That is one of the unique things about religions. There's always a strange mystery shrouding their day one origins, even when in some cases by rights, we should know exactly how they came into being, and Mormonism is an example of one of those cases. But in episode one, I said that we don't know the day one origins of Mormonism as well as we should, and some may have been taken aback by that, because it's not as if Joseph Smith descended one day from the planet Lily Star with his complete scriptures in tow. We know that he was a treasure hunter, that he was putzing around upstate New York with his seer stone, spinning yarns about the provenance of the ancient native burial mounds, and we know that he fraudulently claimed to have translated the gold Bible off of a set of likely non-existent plates. I mean, what else do we need to know? 
Now, many are familiar with the South Park treatment of Mormon origins, but what's sometimes lost is that what they're mocking there is actually something that's close to the official Latter-day Saints version of the events. The reality, as far as we can piece it together, is actually even worse. Because in the official story, the one that Joseph Smith gives in our reading, he received a series of visions well before the Book of Mormon was first published. And, and these are the visions that include him asking God which of the Protestant faiths was the most appropriate for him to join and things like that. But as far as we know, these stories were invented later on, after the first few years of the religion. Joseph Smith's religious activity doesn't seem to have really begun until very late in the 1820s, when it seems to have clicked in his mind that he could combine his fantastical stories about the buried treasures of the ancient natives with a spiritual element that he absorbed from books like A View of the Hebrews. But we don't necessarily have a secure timeline for any of these things, and what's more, it's not exactly clear how he actually created the Book of Mormon or how he actually, quote-unquote, translated the Gold Bible. You know, his first assistant, Martin Harris, said that there was a sort of a screen set up between him and Joseph Smith while he was taking dictation. So for that case, we can hypothesize that maybe Joseph Smith was behind the screen with like 200 books open on his desk, and Martin Harris was prohibited from lifting the screen under pain of divine vengeance. And while Joseph Smith was dictating, he was paging and flipping through his reference materials the whole time. But according to his later assistants like Emma Hale and Oliver Cowdery, he dictated to them sitting across a table without any screen. So many have tried to figure out whether he may have had some reference materials hidden in the hat that he was staring into during the dictation. You know, if so, that had to have been some hat. So it's not 100% clear whether they in fact conspired with him to create the Book of Mormon, whether they were in on the grift, so to speak, or whether he deceived them outright, or whether they suspected he was deceiving them, but just kind of went along with it, kind of like Andy Kaufman at the end of that Man on the Moon film. You know, there's also another problem with pinning down the origins of Mormonism. The early editions of the Book of Mormon contained signing statements by eyewitnesses to the effect that they'd seen the golden plates. Now, some of these witnesses later on admitted that they'd only seen the plates through the eye of faith, but not all of them admitted that. And in fact, the wording of one of the signing statements is such that it actually excludes a mystical sighting. It more or less clearly says that they saw them outright. So again, were these people in on it? Was it a conspiracy? Or did Joseph Smith deceive them? Did he intimidate them? And were they lying? Weren't they lying? So it's like we're grasping at shadows, at these very meager pieces of information. And it isn't too long into the history of the Mormon church before the tsunami of nonsense, with the, the retrospective histories and legends created by Joseph Smith and his companions. Now the claims that he had seen visions and heard about the plates going all the way back before 1820 all these cover stories come rolling in and were quickly swept away. We can form a good hypothesis of how the Book of Mormon was put together, but that's all it can ever be. And on this, I want to say two things. One, this religion was formed in the relatively full light of history. There were newspapers in every one of these small towns where the early Mormons were knocking about, towns that were usually full of Joseph Smith's enemies. And these sources actually have a lot to tell us about Joseph Smith, and they themselves sometimes give out a lot of theories on how they believed he put together the Book of Mormon, but nothing definite, nothing sure, no smoking gun. Nothing that takes us from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on day one of Mormonism. 
the day when Joseph Smith set off on the path to creating a new religion. And the second thing is, all these events also took place in the post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment era. You know, that's even why we're seeing this strange obsession with eyewitness testimony about the plates and why we're seeing things even in the Book of Mormon itself when we read about 2,000 people lining up to touch Jesus's wounds. You know, the numerous self-authenticating statements throughout the Book of Mormon, the, the veiled threat to the reader to consider these things and pray and ponder whether they're really true. In other words, this is a religion that knows from day one that it's gonna get heavily scrutinized and we still can't piece it together. Now, go back almost two millennia. I mean, can we expect to learn the truth of Christian origins merely by a, a straightforward reading of Christian sources, you know, and maybe a handful of hostile pagan sources like, like Tacitus? I mean, we, we see that if we try to do that with Mormon origins, we're forced to accept at least part of the church's own official history of its own origins as our starting point. And thus, we begin the exercise completely compromised. I think what we have to conclude is that the reason that it's so difficult to give a straightforward accounting of the beginnings of a religion is because the foundation of a religion appears to always involve some measure of deceit. And that deceit need not necessarily be malicious. It could be that a new idea takes off unexpectedly in the beginning, and the person or people who originated the idea now find themselves scrambling to justify their prominence or positions within the movement, and they quickly take liberties to settle the backstory of the idea or the religion, to rewrite it, in other words. And we see Joseph Smith doing this very thing literally here in our reading. I think we also see an equivalent of this in the texts of early Christianity, what should be viewed as sectarian texts. And we may not see some late second century Christian cleric laying it out on the page confession style like Joseph Smith, as in, all right, here's the real story of how Christianity began. But we do see elements of this clarifying, this rewriting of history in the sectarian texts themselves. Between the lines of Acts of the Apostles, in the editing and layering of Paul's letters, in the creation of the Catholic epistles, in the serial composition of the Synoptic Gospels, in the redaction of John's Gospel and the redactions of the first letter of John in the book of Revelation, and in short, in the very assembly and compilation of the New Testament itself. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now 5 p.m. on March 15th, 2022. This is episode 22 of the Early Christianity program where we punch the kitten for a wider set of options. Hosted by Chris Palmero. The music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompey Gray. It is my fervent hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this telebroadcast on your favorite platform and that you will support the Patreon at patreon.com slash born in the second century. The idea behind the Patreon is general support that goes mostly into research materials. Now, always remember that this show is really an alternative voice, one among a very few in a vast ocean of Christianity podcasts that are really carbon copies of each other. I'm talking about the shows that are done by mainstream theologians, of course, and we welcome our newest supporters. We greet Christopher heartily in the Lord with the church that is in our house. And also, my words may be foolishness to those who are perishing, but to Tom, they are the power of God. The last bonus show was about the pseudo-letters of the New Testament. 
For the next bonus show, and there are two per month, I want to actually explore something different. I'll do a micro-commentary on the Luke episodes, and if this idea is successful, I'll continue doing it going forward, but what I plan to do is to go more into depth on the two Luke episodes we've just done, 21 and 22, and go more into the background of each episode, go into some additional material that I had to very reluctantly cut for time reasons, or because I realized late in the day that I was making a bad argument, that happens, and that's the kind of thing I hope will come out in the micro-commentaries. And I don't reveal too much about myself or my thought process on the main show because I've been around the block with this stuff long enough to know that the apologists and critics tend to attack the individual and not the individual's argument. For example, just recently, I was criticized by a detractor who called me a young Hegelian. Young with a capital Y. As in, I was accused of being part of a movement called the Young Hegelians. So let that sink in. I mean, I maybe know enough about Hegel to possibly pull a C plus if I took an exam about him, but, you know, they try to put you in a box. All this to say, there will be a lot more of the personal touch in the bonus episodes and the micro-commentaries for those gracious enough to support the podcast. But even setting aside the Patreon, I, of course, thank all those who have been listening in general, and especially those who have been emailing me at secondcenturypodcast at gmail.com. Gotten a lot of good emails this month from listeners. But let's begin the show for today. It has occurred to me, rather late in the day, that these ongoing discussions of the New Testament books and their dating and authorship are not technically part of the bright in the corners concept. Uh, They should technically be part of the New Testament journey. Episode 17, on the creation of the New Testament and the David Trobish theory, that's more of an example of a bright in the corners episode. It's more like an explainer So as we discuss the New Testament books in detail, we're going to undergo a slight rebranding and refer to these episodes as being part of the New Testament journey. How does this affect you as a listener? Uh, Not at all, really, which raises the question of why I'm even mentioning it. But I know the answer to that. I'm mentioning it because of a perfectionism that verges on being debilitating. But the Bright in the Corners episodes, the sort of background explainers, are meant to be occasional. Uh, We might do one on Gnosticism, for example, or Docetism, or the concept of the Messiah within Judaism. But when we discuss these individual books, it's the New Testament journey. And if you recall, I started this concept back in episode two. And where it ultimately comes from is my primary influence. The primary influence on Born in the Second Century is not Robert M. Price, it's not Dan Carlin, it isn't Myth Vision or Aeon Bite Radio. It's actually a professional wrestling podcast called The Lapsed Fan, and their big break was when they started something called The WrestleMania Journey, where they spent nigh on a year reviewing all the WrestleMania shows that had ever been done. And so I was kind of mimicking that. Uh, The format of this show is basically The Lapsed Fan if they were doing an alternative Catholic mass that was also a sort of lecture on radical New Testament criticism. Born in the Second Century is a blue ocean, And I want to be less like the traditional Christianity or Bible podcast, and if that involves emulating the lapsed fan, then so be it. But we're going to continue today with our New Testament journey, where we investigate the traditional arguments for the date of each of the 27 books. In the last episode, we talked about the structure and composition of Luke's gospel, and we identified our terminus dates, the upper and lower limits for the gospel's composition. And we found that we can look anywhere between 26 AD and 150 AD for the creation of proto-Luke, that is the underlying core of the gospel, 
And then sometime in the ensuing decades, but somewhat before 190, we can look for the creation of the canonical version of Luke, in which a redactor took the proto-Luke, added material from Mark's gospel, added material from other sources, and integrated this new product with Acts of the Apostles. Today, we're going to focus much more heavily on the arguments around the date of the book. We're going to show that the conventional date that's given to Luke's gospel, which is somewhat between 80 and 90 AD, is more or less unfounded. And as usual, we'll examine the arguments that fundamentalists have made on the date of Luke and respond to them. We'll do the same thing for the mainstream theologians. Then some of my own thoughts on the date, and then we'll explore the authorship and attribution and talk about why it was added to the New Testament at all. We want to be asking today whether we can have any confidence in the conventional arguments for placing this gospel on the timeline. Back after this. Origins of the New Testament by the great theologian Alfred Loisy, 1936 AD. Perhaps a day will come when enlightened criticisms on the sole evidence of the prologues that stand at the head of the third gospel and of Acts will decide that the author who there addresses himself to Theophilus and those who arrange the canonical edition of his work must both be ranked in the same category as the apologists of the second century who pleaded the cause of Christianity before the Antonines, and that he and they doubtless lived in that age. That was a reading from The Origins of the New Testament by Loisy. He was a French cleric and a prominent scholar of early Christianity who really did a lot to advance the non-dogmatic study and criticism of the New Testament, especially within Catholicism, and he was excommunicated for his troubles and he famously couldn't even get a haircut from his pious hometown barber after that. This was the time when the Catholic Church was in the middle of its crusade against modernism, so they weren't necessarily in the mood for innovative scholarship at the time. Whenever someone asks for a book recommendation to get into this subject, my first response is always the two books of Loisy that can be purchased in one single edition that includes both, The Birth of the Christian Religion and The Origins of the New Testament. Because I think that Loisy is about as critical and skeptical as it's possible to get about early Christianity without going beyond the margin that many would consider fringe. And I mean, he was not a mythicist. He hated mythicism. 
But he really didn't suffer fools gladly when it came to conservative theologians and apologists in his time either, and they were making some very traditional arguments about the origins of Christianity and the New Testament books that were rooted in, ultimately, in, in religious belief. I think that if he were alive today in the modern world with the internet and everything, uh, there's no way this guy is a Christian if he lived in the 21st century. I think the same thing about D.F. Strauss, actually, who wrote The Life of Jesus Critically Examined. But I think that D.F. Strauss wouldn't have had a notable career or wouldn't have been famous if he were alive today. He would be like Tim Allen from Home Improvement, but if that character did not have the TV show with Al Borland, you know, he, he would just be like a family man with a steady job. Alfred Loisy would still be famous, though. He'd be like a major gadfly, like a Nader's Raiders type. But I bring him up to illustrate a larger point. This was a fairly serious scholar. And yeah, he wrote before the Dead Sea Scrolls, before the Nag Hammadi writings were discovered. But you know me, I think the Dead Sea Scrolls are way overrated when it comes to Christian origins. And the Nag Hammadi writings, I mean, the things they contain actually throw the conventional paradigm even more out of joint, in my view. That's why many theologians try to hand wave them and stick them all the way in the third century. But here in our reading, Loisy has no question that canonical Luke dates to the second century, the late second century, as he says, the age of the Antonines. That is, the Roman emperors who ruled between the 130s and the 190s. But if you ever, when considering this podcast, if you ever entertain a doubt that the opinions and the theories here are contrarian or ultra-radical or fringe, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is territory that is well-traversed, and some brilliant scholars from the past have explored these topics. It's just something that we're no longer used to because these innovative views have essentially been strong-armed out of the mainstream. Now, I've been providing what I think are pretty fair summaries of the conventional arguments that put these books in the first century. Now, there may be a bit of slant in my presentation, a bit of humor. I may bring them up just to criticize them. But the conventional arguments that I'm talking about are certainly available in their original forms for anyone to read. And when I prepare these shows, I usually make sure to consult at least five commentaries on the particular gospel I'm discussing, including at least one from the 19th century, so I can ensure that we're not missing anything key. And in all this, and anyone can of course go back anytime and read what the theologians themselves say in the dates of these things, in all this, I hope that it has struck you as to how flimsy the early dating arguments for the Gospels really are. And at some point, we have to consider, if the Gospels aren't cited by name until almost the year 200, and if we only have a few sparse data points to maybe put them in the first century, but a whole gamut of anachronisms and counterpoints that suggest putting them in the second century, then at what point do we feel safe declaring that they were in fact composed in the second century? These are the questions we need to ask. I mean, we need to ask why these texts aren't known until 150 AD and later. And, and the response that we usually get when we ask that question is that, well, the Gospels weren't respected yet before that time. You know, the majority of Christians didn't feel a need for the Gospels until the fourth or fifth generation of Christianity. And what they were relying on up until that point was oral tradition and these limited accounts of Jesus's preaching and miracles and death and resurrection. And of course, the Gospels did exist that entire time, but they hadn't yet gained prominence in preaching and teaching yet. And it's like, okay, if that's the case, then who the hell preserved the Gospels that whole time? 
Who had the foresight to preserve them and copy and copy and copy them again and again over the entire intervening 100 years, having had the presence of mind to know that they would be the go-to sources someday at the exclusion of every other written product about Jesus? I mean, was there something like the foundation from the Isaac Asimov novels that was operating in early Christianity? I mean, one small group of weirdos that was carefully maintaining these voluminous texts that were thoroughly unpopular in the first decades of Christianity and were ignored by everyone and were set aside in favor of oral tradition. But this little foundation group of eccentrics just kept copying and maintaining them anyway. Until finally in the 150s, the Gospels, they finally broke out and gained broad acceptance. And keep in mind that no gospel manuscript has been found that can be securely dated to before 150 AD. Now that could imply that if the gospels were indeed written in the first century, then they must have indeed seen heavy use in their initial decades such that their earliest extant copies date from only after that time. But that would give the lie to the idea that the gospels were unused or unpopular prior to 150 AD. But these late copies, they could also imply that the Gospels weren't, in fact, composed until the second century. And I hope we can become more accustomed to thinking this way. And we're in good company if we do. It's not as if that ground hasn't been covered before. And also, if you've been listening to the episodes in order, by now you've heard me speak for something like 45 hours on this topic. I mean, have I come across as someone who would be arguing for late dates for the Gospels, late dates for Christian origins, if I wasn't dead sure that such positions could be argued. I mean, it's always fun to talk about chariots of the gods, worlds beyond the poles, and that kind of thing, but that's not what this is. This is an alternative paradigm that draws pretty significantly from the work of seriously reputable scholars from the past. But to that point, here are some of the dates that have been assigned to the Gospel of Luke by theologians. 48 AD, 50 to 53, 60, 62 to 63, 63 to 64, 64, 70, 70 to 75, 70 to 80, 70 to 90, 78 to 93 by Dr. Harnack, 85 to 95, 90 to 94, 95 to 105 by Helmut Kester, 100, 100 to 110, 110, 115 to 130, 130 to 170, 160 to 180, and 168 to 177. We followed our custom in giving the various dates, but notice something about these date ranges for Luke and for the other two synoptics. Notice how for all three Gospels, almost every single year between the 40s and the 180s is covered by these dates. Now what we should expect is maybe two broad ranges of dates instead. What I mean is we should maybe expect like an early dating school and a late dating school. And the early daters would propose their range of, let's say, you know, 50 to 70. And then the late dating school would propose, let's say, 120 to 140. But no, in reality, someone at some point has argued a date for the synoptic gospels in every decade between the supposed life of Jesus and the actual first references to the gospels by name in the time of Irenaeus. Now that to me is highly problematic. But without further ado, let's get to the fundamentalists. What date did they assign to Luke's gospel? Well, by now, you know the drill. Just as in the film Pulp Fiction, where the characters like their burgers bloody as hell, well, the fundamentalists like their gospels early as hell. 
We're looking at prior to 60 AD for the Gospel of Luke and usually well prior to 60 AD. And the first reason is that they say that Acts of the Apostles was written by Luke. Acts of the Apostles seems to cut off in the mid-60s AD. Therefore, it and the Gospel of Luke were written sometime before the mid-60s AD. And of course, for them, there's no question that all of Luke and all of Acts come from the same author. Now, they're not interested in this source criticism, the fundamentalists. You know, to them, one guy belched out both of these books in one sitting. And Acts of the Apostles, of course, has the we passages that we talked about where the author occasionally breaks into the first person. And they believe those to be the actual eyewitness testimony of Luke himself when he was traveling on board a ship with Paul and uh, witnessing Paul get bitten by a snake on Malta and apparently doing nothing about it. Uh, there was uh, Sex in the City had a reboot recently, a new series featuring the original characters, but checking in with them 20 years later. And you may have heard that there was a big controversy where one of the characters, she came home to find her husband slumped down on the floor after a heart attack. And instead of availing herself of modern technology to like call an ambulance or something, she instead did the uh, ancient movie trope of cradling him on the floor and crying. Now, I would have said spoiler alert there, but yeah, I, I don't think that there's much crossover between born in the second century fans and fans of the Sex in the City reboot necessarily. All this to say, many viewers were upset about this scene and how supposedly unrealistic it was. But this kind of thing has happened before in history. And that's what a good screenwriter does. They take things from real life and they adapt them into their scripts. And in the unquestionably historical source that is Acts of the Apostles, we read the following, quote, But after the Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and after he'd laid them on the fire, a viper, having come out because of the heat, attached itself to his hand. When the barbarians saw the beast hanging from his hand, they said to each other, No doubt this man is a murderer, who, although he'd been rescued from the sea, Justice hasn't allowed him to live. But he, after he shook the beast off into the fire, suffered no harm. End quote. Let me ask you something. What was Luke doing while this was happening? He's supposed to be an eyewitness. He was just sitting there while Paul is essentially getting mauled by a snake. And, you know, and he takes the time to tell us what these Maltese natives were commenting about. What, was he just right there with him, just shooting the breeze? Like... They said, surely this man is a murderer. And Luke's just sitting there with him, watching Paul wrestle this viper, like Ben Stiller wrestling the border terrier and there's something about Mary. Maybe he even joined in their conversation, like, yeah, actually, he has been accused of murder, you know, by the Jews and all that, but I've been rolling with him a while and I haven't really got the sense that any of it's true. Get off your ass and help this guy, Luke. I mean, it's not like he grabbed an exposed wire where you're not supposed to touch him. You know, it's a snake. Just pour some hot water on it or hit it with a stick or something. Uh, disclaimer, ask your doctor or pharmacist how to deal with snake bites. Born in the second century is not a licensed provider of medical advice. But yes, I do get that this story is symbolic and tropic, but you know, that's kind of my point. Acts of the Apostles is not a history, it's a compendium of legends. But all this to say, from obviously historical eyewitness accounts like this, this snake story, which are written in the first person, fundamentalists have learned that Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, which they also see as an early text because it doesn't mention the death of James the Just or Paul or Peter. So Luke's gospel has to obviously precede it since it's volume one of the two volume set and Acts is volume two. Now, who is Luke according to the fundamentalist? 
Well, they generally say that he's the same man that's mentioned three times in Paul's letters, like we talked about last time. A man named Luke is mentioned as accompanying Paul in Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. So it's an open and shut case to them. Now, in Colossians, Paul called Luke a physician, which leads us to our next reason that fundamentalists put the gospel of Luke early. They say that parts of Luke and Acts appear to have been written by someone with medical knowledge. And to them, this is more proof that we're to identify the author of this gospel with the companion of Paul, whom he calls a physician. A big part of this Dr. Luke argument is the comparisons of the various synoptic gospel passages where medical ailments are described. And it's argued that Luke tends to use more technically correct medical terminology in these passages. Like he uses a better, more descriptive term for the fever that Peter's mother-in-law is suffering from. And instead of saying, like Mark, that someone was a leper, Luke says that he was covered in leprosy. And that supposedly suggests the knowledge that this affliction actually involves skin rashes, since what's called leprosy in the New Testament is usually thought to refer not to Hansen's disease, like in the movie Ben-Hur, but rather to what we would now call psoriasis. And also, with the woman who'd had a flow of blood for 12 years, when she's healed by Jesus, Luke says that her hemorrhage stopped, which is slightly more medically accurate than the caveman language that Mark uses when he says the flow of her blood was dried up. So the fundamentalists have learned from these and other passages that Luke possessed medical training, which to them would corroborate Paul's identifying him as a physician. Now, a third reason why fundamentalists put the Gospel of Luke early is that they say that it's quoted by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Paul is giving Timothy a laundry list of prescriptions, and one of the things he says is that the elders who lead well should be worthy of double honor because, quote, the laborer is worthy of his wages. This is a Q quote, and the form that's being used is the one that we find in the Gospel of Luke. So Paul is apparently quoting Luke's writing as scripture. And of course, fundamentalists believe that the pastoral epistles, including 1 Timothy, were genuinely written by Paul and that in the mid-60s. But what I'm going to do this time that I haven't done on the previous episodes is to address the arguments of the fundamentalists and the theologians immediately after I bring them up. You know, before I was laying all the dating arguments out and then laying out all the responses after that, but we're going to change it up somewhat here. Let's look at fundamentalist argument number one for an early date for Luke, a pre-60 date. They said Luke and Acts were written by the same author and they were both written before about the year 62 because that's when Acts of the Apostles appears to run out of info. And also Luke was a companion of Paul because some parts of Acts are written in the first person. First of all, if you believe that Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, you better pray that he wasn't a companion of Paul. You know, considering how inconsistent that book is with Paul's actual letters and his character and beliefs as depicted in those letters, Acts of the Apostles verges almost on libel in its depiction of Paul. You know, if you're using the letters as any kind of guide to Paul. And also, need I even mention that in neither of these two books is Luke identified as the author. And here's where I want to point something else out. Would it have killed the gospel writers to provide their name anywhere in their books? Like briefly at the beginning, briefly at the end, you know, just like every single other Greco-Roman author did. But we know the reason they didn't do this. It's because they were self-consciously writing scripture. 
And we said last time that canonical Luke is mostly following the style of the Maccabees books. Well, here's how 1st Maccabees begins, quote, After Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated King Darius of the Persians and the Medes, he succeeded him as king. End quote. It's like, damn, good morning to you too. No introduction, no identification by the author. And here's how 1st Maccabees ends, quote, The rest of the acts of John and his wars and the brave deeds that he did and the building of the walls that he completed and his achievements are written in the annals of his high priesthood from the time he became high priest after his father. End quote. By John, he means the great Jewish leader and high priest John Hyrkanos, that is, Yochanan Kohen Gadol. But the author of 1 Maccabees didn't give his name, didn't share any information about himself. And authors or compilers like him are actually following the examples of books like Ezra and Nehemiah and First and Second Kings from the Old Testament. So that's how that works. That's the real reason the Gospels are anonymous. It has nothing to do with them being repositories of received oral tradition. What they're doing is mimicking the Jewish historical books. And their titles, including the title According to Luke, were applied to these texts by an external party, as we'll talk about again today and as we talked about in some depth in episode 17. And this thing about the name of the book, where fundamentalists are saying that Luke wrote the gospel and he wrote Acts, and he's the same Luke that's mentioned in the three Pauline letters, they're not doing any kind of critical scholarship to come to that conclusion. In fact, they're not even really thinking at all. It requires no thought. Now, anyone will go to any length to avoid the real labor of thinking, That's the plaque that uh, Thomas Edison caused to be hung up in all his little workhouses. And it's become kind of the de facto motto of fundamentalism. What I mean is that fundamentalists are not deducing the identity of Luke by studying Acts and concluding that it was written by a companion of Paul, you know, and then maybe flipping back to Paul's letters and determining which companion of Paul might be responsible by some kind of process of elimination. No, they're looking at the title of the Gospel of Luke And then pointing out that, hey, a Luke is also mentioned in three of Paul's letters. You know, does it occur to them that the Gospel of Luke might not have originally even had a name and that someone chose the Luke title for it because they specifically wanted to telegraph that it was written by a companion of Paul? No, the fundamentalists have no time for that. Title says the thing. Title says it. I believe it. That settles it. But even setting aside the title of the book and the identity of Luke, we are not required to accept Acts of the Apostles as an early text. You know, it indeed doesn't mention the deaths of certain key figures, but that's because the author has an artistic, literary, and apologetic program to fulfill. And it is clear from many, many passages in Acts of the Apostles that the age of yore, when Peter and James and John and Paul stalked the earth, is in the distant past, the legendary past, in fact. And I apologize here because I'm about to use another modern analogy. And I've talked about Requiem for a Dream. I've talked about the Jurassic Park novel, God help me. Uh, I've talked about Bart's Nightmare. At least I think I have. Not sure. But when I draw these analogies between the gospel authors and modern authors, I understand that literature and, of course, art generally has developed quite a bit since the second century. So I'm not implying that the ancient authors were doing the same things that modern authors are doing in their works. I'm using these analogies merely by way of illustration. And I actually want to talk briefly about the first Star Wars novels, the ones written by Timothy Zahn around 1990. Now, technically, they weren't the first. There were a few that came out around the times of the actual movies. 
And then Star Wars kind of fell off the radar in the late 80s. And then this guy, Timothy Zahn, approached Lucasfilm. And he wanted to write a few books that took place in the Star Wars universe. And he was told that the stories had to be set after the timeline covered in the movies and that certain characters couldn't be killed off. Now, the reason being was that Lucasfilm was leaving its options open in case it ever wanted to revisit those characters and make further movies. And so the novels do have, like Luke Skywalker and all these others, but the author is constrained in the sense that he can essentially write anything he wants about Luke Skywalker, but he can't kill him off. It's only an analogy, but the Axe author is in a similar position. He's writing a story about the adventures of Peter and Paul and James and Philip and the major heroes of the legendary Christian past, but something is constraining him from not only not mentioning their deaths, but even from suitably closing out their stories within the actual narrative itself. Like, notice how blatantly he foreshadows Paul's death throughout the last few chapters of Acts, yet he can't for some reason bring himself to say that Paul eventually was, in fact, martyred. He inches up to it the whole time, and he backs off at the last second. Paul stayed two full years in his rented house and welcomed all who came to him. You know, prior to this, he's been led all the way across the Mediterranean in chains as a prisoner. You know, I think even without the copious foreshadowing that we read in his farewell speech, I mean, we could pretty well guess that he wasn't acquitted after all this. Also, the author is creating a parallel between the last days of Jesus and the last days of Paul. Now, what would he be implying if Paul was in fact released from prison after all this, that he's superior to Jesus? Now, here's how Peter is dispensed with in the narrative. About halfway through Acts of the Apostles, Peter breaks out of jail like you know, John Goodman in Raising Arizona, and he goes to a safe house. And this is what it says, quote, He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. End quote. This would have been the last mention of Peter in the book, except the author has him pipe up at one point briefly during the Jerusalem Council later on. I think because the author recognized that he still needed Peter to be present at that scene to give it legitimacy. But other than that, Peter literally disappears. This is how the author got rid of him. He said he went to another place. Now, we know that the Acts author is no slouch when it comes to naming all the podunk little towns that these early Christians are traveling back and forth to. Isn't it strange that he said this about Peter? He went to another place. He went to which place, exactly? Again, it seems like the author is constrained for some reason. He wants to include these characters in the adventures they're having, but he has no convenient way to get them off stage when he doesn't need them anymore. Now, we can talk more about this when we cover Acts, but my own view is that the actual legends about the deaths of Peter and Paul and James were touchy subjects in the late second century when this book was written. And this author is a man of peace. He's peaceful. He's an ironic man, if you catch my drift. And he's trying to reconcile competing factions. And he doesn't want to dredge up anything that's going to make the partisans of these competing sects uncomfortable. And I've already said many times before that Acts of the Apostles is not even a straightforward narrative. It's like Homer Simpson trying to recall the drunken party that he went to the night before. There's no temporal or spatial logic to it. And now we can see that something seems to be preventing the author from revealing too many details about the legendary Christian figures. And that may indeed be only a narrative constraint. 
It may literally be that the author has no interest in discussing Peter's death or James's death and just needs to whack the characters out of the page. It could also be that he's trying to avoid any unnecessary unpleasantness. And lastly, Acts of the Apostles is not a chronicle. When a chronicle cuts off at 62 AD, we are well within scope to posit that it was last updated in 62 AD. If the narrative of a novel appears to end in 62 AD, we are by no means forced to conclude that it was written in 62 AD. Now, as for what the fundamentalists say about Luke being a physician, first of all, to the person with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, Luke is referred to as the beloved physician. Might that reference actually be the reason that some Christian scholars of the past have discovered all the supposed advanced medical terminology that's used in Luke and Acts? In other words, had Colossians said, Luke, the beloved chef, greets you, do you not think that we'd be forced to put up with an endless stream of books and articles about the advanced culinary vocabulary in Luke and Acts and how it proves that the author really was a Hellenistic chef? I mean, let's actually do that exercise now. Uh, we can see that in Matthew's temptation story, where Jesus is tempted by the devil, the devil says to him, command that these stones become bread. But in Luke's temptation story, the devil says, tell this stone to become bread. Hmm. Well, Matthew was probably not a chef like Luke was, because Matthew appears to assume that in order to make bread, you need a lot of ingredients, a lot of materials. That's why he says that these stones would become bread. You know, he assumes you need a lot of them. You know, Matthew doesn't understand how the food actually gets to his table. It's, it's like magic to him. You know, but Luke, the beloved chef, he knows that you can create bread from even a small amount of materials. And you know, that's why he uses his culinary knowledge to put stone in the singular, command that this stone become bread. So... Yeah, this kind of argument about technical vocabulary is shits for the birds, but let's leave no stone unturned here and actually address it. We can turn to the anchor commentary on Luke by Joseph Fitzmaier. He gives about as good a summary on this physician thing as we can get. He says that the turn of the 20th century was really the heyday of Luke's gospel being viewed as written by someone with a medical background. Uh, that's because in the 1880s, a book was published by the theologian W.K. Hobart, that laid out this argument in full. But it wasn't long before other theologians began lining up around the block to call this guy a buster and try to refute him. And they pointed out that a lot of this alleged technical medical language in Luke is also to be found in the Septuagint. And they said that even authors like Lucian and Josephus, who decidedly did not have medical training, also use some of these same terms in their books. In fact, one theologian of the time parodied this argument about Luke's medical knowledge. He wrote a satire called Luke and the Horse Doctors, which humorously pointed out that some of the vocabulary used by Luke can also be found in a compendium of ancient Greek texts about horse medicine. But like I said, I think that this Luke's gospel as medical texts argument really only exists because the author of Colossians identified Luke as a physician in the letter. I mean, I joked about the chef thing, but if he'd even just said, Luke greets you, you know, instead of Luke the physician greets you, and the Gospel of Luke read the exact same way that it does now, no one would ever have ventured to point out that Luke's Gospel supposedly uses 
technical medical language. So that's the physician argument. But the third argument of the fundamentalists that we covered is by far my favorite. The Gospel of Luke has to be early because it's quoted as scripture in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Now, only the most conservative of theologians would say that Paul wrote the so-called pastoral letters, that is, First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are strikingly late texts. They are, in fact, among the most important texts used by me to place the origins of Christianity in the second century. But let's even set that aside for a moment. Because there's a bigger problem with this argument than the fact that the pastorals weren't written by Paul. And this is a very striking case of the fundamentalists not being able to keep track of their own BS. Because Luke was supposed to be a close companion of Paul, right? He supposedly wrote his gospel while he was traveling with Paul. So are we then to understand that Paul, when writing a letter to someone else, quoted his companion's book as scripture? Now, if you look at 1 Timothy 5.18, this is what it says, quote, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. End quote. Now, the first quote about the ox is from Deuteronomy. The second quote is from Luke, Luke's gospel. Now, this is where some people try to claim that, you know, he's only quoting scripture for the first of the two quotes. And the second quote is really just like a semi-related utterance of Jesus that has somewhat to do with the first quote and helps explain it further. And you know what? You're going to have to get up pretty early in the morning to put such an imposture over on me. This author is clearly quoting Luke's gospel as scripture, and he's doing this because the pastoral letters were, in reality, written very late. I put them in the late 160s, and if my calculations are correct, their pseudonymous author was indeed quoting something that he viewed as scripture, which was the proto-Luke, where this quote appears. Now, there are some listening to this who may be thinking that this is a somewhat of a low blow on my part against the fundamentalist because many of the listeners to this show are very knowledgeable about these texts and they might be thinking that there's no way anyone really argues that Paul is quoting Luke and maybe uses that as an argument to put Luke early. Well, yesterday I performed an experiment. I typed the phrase, Paul quotes Luke's gospel into Google. Seven of the 10 results on the first page consisted of fundamentalists earnestly making this argument, including J. Warner Wallace, who I was actually parodying in episode 20 on that apologetic satire. I was parodying him and uh, Lee Strobel. And the other three results were Quora posts and similar things. So this is a live argument. And this is why I've devoted time in this series, in the New Testament journey, to discuss the fundamentalist arguments at length. I mean, they're gibberish to most people who do scholarship on these topics, but their arguments actually have a lot of staying power and a lot of presence, and a lot of people in the, in the public are exposed to them. Yeah, but enough of this foolishness. Let's get closer to the realm of sanity and see what the mainstream theologians have to say about the date of Luke. What we find is that they tend to put Luke between 80 and 90 AD, with a smaller, more conservative school trying to put it before 70 but no matter in what year they stick the Gospel of Luke, they all mostly agree that Luke's Gospel was written after Mark's Gospel, come what may. Luke uses Mark as a source. There's only a tiny handful of theologians who would try to argue that Mark was written after Luke. And these, they usually say that Mark was kind of a combination and abridgment of Matthew and Luke, the so-called Griesbach hypothesis. 
But what about the theologians that put Luke between 80 and 90? What's their evidence? Well, if you recall, the Gospel of Mark had Jesus issue an apocalyptic speech, what I call Apocalypse Junior. And just like Matthew, Luke also includes the Apocalypse Junior, but he adapts it in his own way. And where Mark and Matthew had said that the sign of the end would be the abomination of desolation, Luke has Jesus warn of a more practical sign of the end times. He has Jesus say that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that her desolation is near. So he not only appears to be referring to an actual siege of Jerusalem, but he also appears to be completely recontextualizing the apocalyptic prophecy and making it about the destruction of Jerusalem, whereas in Mark's version, Matthew's version, it was implied but not explicitly stated that Jerusalem would be destroyed in these apocalyptic events. So in the minds of the theologians who put Luke in the 80s AD, Luke knows about the outcome of the first Roman Jewish war, and he considers Jesus' predictions to be at least partially about the first Roman Jewish war. And they even point out that whereas Mark and Matthew had had Jesus issue a warning, pray that your flight won't be in winter, in Luke's gospel this is omitted, supposedly because Luke knew that the destruction of Jerusalem had taken place in the summer, in August of the year 70. There's another indication that Luke was aware of the first Roman-Jewish war and the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jesus is being led to the cross, some of the women of Jerusalem are lamenting, and he says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. You know, he's intimating that something terrible is going to happen to Jerusalem in the near future. And consider that this story is supposed to be taking place in about 30 AD. So by mentioning the bystanders' children, the author seems to be making this out to be a fairly precise prediction of the events of 70 AD because even if some of the bystanders would have died by then, certainly their children would have been alive to experience it. And the theologians have other reasons to justify a date for Luke in the 80s. They point to Luke's prologue. He says that many have undertaken to write an account of the things accomplished among us. In fact, in the prologue, the author implies that he's not even an eyewitness. He implies that he's writing in at least the second or third generation of Christianity. At least being the operative term there, as we'll see. But the theologians speculate that when he speaks of these many accounts that have been written before him, he's probably talking about things like Mark or maybe Q or possibly Matthew. In any case, not something we should expect to read in the years immediately following Jesus' death. The admission here that the author is aware of previous written sources about Jesus. And lastly, the theologians point out that Luke's gospel shows evidence of some development within Christian beliefs and doctrine since the time of Mark. There's supposedly less of an emphasis on the end of the world. There's much more concern with cultivating an ongoing ethic. Jesus is more mythologized. He's given a glorious birth story. He's referred to regularly as the Lord and so on. Now, before addressing these points, I want to speak somewhat about this timeline of 80 to 90 AD that the theologians usually like to defend. I think that out of all the four canonical gospels, the conventional dates of Luke and John are probably the most poorly thought out and poorly defended. John's gospels usually place from 90 to 100. But the theologians' arguments for dating Mark, I mean, I think they suck, but they at least have some internal logic to them. I mean, they center around the Apocalypse Junior and whether the author is aware of the outcome of the Roman-Jewish War. You know, and then with Matthew, they put Matthew about 10 years after Mark, 
you know, and at least some argument can be made that the in Matthew, the situation with the Jews is still very fraught. You know, maybe that's because of some lingering after effects of the Roman Jewish war. Yeah, you know, maybe it's still an open wound, so to speak. So I, I, I think those arguments are kind of baseless too, but they are at least coherent. But there is nothing about the 80s AD in particular that calls for the gospel of Luke to be placed there. There's nothing about the 90s AD in particular that calls for John to be placed there. I'm telling you that theologians have even better logic and arguments when it comes to dating the gospel of Thomas than they do with Luke and John. Honestly, you know what it seems like to me? It seems like they decided that Mark's gospel was written in 70 and they literally added a decade and placed Matthew there. And then they added another decade and placed Luke there. And then they did the same thing with John. We'll address their actual arguments here about Luke in a moment, but from what we've covered in those arguments that I just kind of went through, I mean, there's nothing that screams 80 AD about any of them. So why 80 to 90 AD specifically? I mean, it's not like anyone can argue that Luke is writing about, say, the reign of Domitian. You know, maybe he hates Domitian and he fantasizes about Domitian being overthrown, but maybe he does that in such a way that it's clear that he doesn't actually know how Domitian's reign really ended in real history And so we could therefore see our way clear to placing Luke's gospel in like the 90s AD. There's nothing like that. Before recording this show today, I really tried to get inside the mind of the theologians to figure out why they chose this date, 80 to 90. And this is the best I could come up with. I think that they start from the position that Luke and Acts were written by the same author. And they mostly don't think that that author had access to Paul's letters. So in other words, to them, Luke and Acts had to have been written before Paul's letters were first assembled in a compilation. Now, no one is sure when Paul's letters were first assembled in a compilation, but the theologians believe that First Clement, an extra-canonical Christian letter, had access to a collection of letters by Paul, and they arbitrarily assigned First Clement to 96 AD. So to them, by 96 AD, Paul's letters were assembled in a compilation And therefore, Luke and Acts had to be written prior to 96 AD and maybe like 10 years prior to 96 AD. And so we land between 80 and 90 and we cap the Gospel of Luke at around that time period. I mean, it's unscientific as hell, but that's the best I could come up with. I mean, if that is in fact what they're thinking, then we can quickly address briefly here why it doesn't work. One, First Clement is undateable. I mean, we talked about it briefly in episodes 11 and 12, and we'll talk about it again and again. But what that means for us here in this context is that the 96 AD date that they assigned to it is irrelevant and unusable. Two, Acts of the Apostles does know Paul's letters, and a case can in fact be made that canonical Luke knows Paul's letters. And I talked extensively about that in the second bonus show, which was about the Bart Ehrman interview where he commented on the date of Paul. It really just seems like the theologians are pulling up any excuse that sounds remotely plausible to keep this gospel as early and as close to the life of Jesus as possible, while still making sure to account for the author's apparent knowledge of the Jewish war. And that way we preserve another supposedly reliable source for the historical Jesus. Because they recognize that if the gospel of Luke was in fact written in the second century, then its value as a source for Jesus is utterly compromised but we can respond to their actual arguments here briefly. They said that Luke is more explicitly aware of the first Roman Jewish war. 
I would agree on that. And I would agree that the author of Canonical Luke, the great doctor, has surgically injected that knowledge into his rewriting of Mark's Apocalypse Jr. But honestly, nothing that he says about the Roman-Jewish War necessarily requires it to have taken place only a decade previously. I mean, what he says about it could just as well have been said in the year 180 than the year 80, especially if he was using Josephus as a source, which we'll also talk about later. But for all that, Luke, out of all three of the Synoptic Gospels, reveals the clearest knowledge of the Roman-Jewish War. Now, I said in episode 18 that I believe all three Synoptic Gospels are aware of the events of 70, but I didn't use that as a terminus date because it wasn't really a sure thing. None of them state it outright. Luke comes the closest to stating it outright. But again, that's useful in establishing a lower limit to his date range. Can't really help with establishing an upper limit. The next thing the theologian said was that Luke's prologue indicates that he's at least a second-generation Christian, possibly to them more likely a third-generation Christian. Now, that's also true, but because I believe that the prologue was added by the redactor, I don't necessarily know how much it can tell us about the date of Luke's gospel as a whole, but we'll certainly talk about the prologue again in a minute. I also think that whoever wrote the prologues in Luke and Acts was actually following the two prologues from Against Appion, a Josephus book from the early 2nd century. Now, this is where I've gotten into all kinds of arguments because I'm always told that, you know, these kinds of prologues were common in ancient books, especially when a benefactor is involved. And that's true in general, but these two sets of prologues in particular, Luke Acts and Against Appion, are strikingly similar. And if the redactor of Luke Acts knew the writings of Josephus, as we'll also talk about shortly, then that makes sense. But I would agree with the theologians at least that Luke's prologue puts that part of the book after 70 AD. Now, lastly, the theologians talk about the concepts in Luke being more highly developed compared to what we find in Mark. The Christology is more developed. I just think this is a case of them saying that the book needed to bake in the oven for a, a period of time. And they, and they do this with Matthew too. Like they put Mark at 70 and they see that Matthew both uses Mark and seems to be more advanced in his terminology than Mark but they don't have a hard date for Matthew, so they say basically that Matthew was written about 10 years after Mark. You know, why not? Stick Mark in the oven for 10 years, and it'll come out looking like Matthew. Well, they do the same thing with Luke also, only for some reason, they say that Luke had to bake a little bit longer than Matthew, since, since they usually put Matthew between 70 and 80, and they put Luke between 80 and 90, usually. But now we get to the more conservative theologians that want to put Luke's gospel before 70 AD. And instead of just presenting these in the typical bullet format, I thought I'd do something a little bit different here. I listened to a debate, well, allegedly, I mean, that's what they called it, but I listened to an exchange between Bart Ehrman, who's a mainstream theologian, and Peter J. Williams, who's a quite conservative theologian. I think it was on Premier Christian Radio. Now, the host was pretty good, and he tried his best to get these two to actually, you know, debate and exchange ideas and communicate, but Bart Ehrman really wasn't having it. You know, they were supposed to be debating about the date of the Gospel of Luke. And when I saw that, I was like, that's amazing. I mean, this is the perfect research that I need for my show. It's a, a mainstream theologian and a conservative theologian, and they're battling it out giving evidence and arguments about the very subject that I'm scheduled to discuss. Well, even like one hour into this thing, you know, Bart Ehrman, in, in my opinion, he was refusing to engage, basically. 
He has this tendency that I've noticed in these debates and in his books as well to try to always reframe the question and bring everything back to a kind of a formal logic. Like if you ask him, are the miracle stories about Jesus reliable accounts? Instead of answering it directly, he tends to say things like, well, you can't say whether they're reliable accounts. The first thing you have to ask is, did Jesus do miracles? And it's like, no, you don't, dude. Just answer the question, please. Just tell us what you think about the Jesus book and move on. But that kind of thing was very much in evidence. And I also didn't like how he treated his opponent, treated him like poo. I mean, this poor guy, whom he claims is his friend, he was scoffing and sneering and just being generally disagreeable. Now, his opponent, the conservative theologian, Peter J. Williams, I thought he was a nice man. Uh, I actually purchased one of his books after listening, but more to the point, he actually made arguments. Now, he didn't necessarily specify an exact date for Luke, and he doesn't do so in his book either, but the thrust of his arguments are that, essentially, it's based on eyewitness or contemporary accounts, so therefore fairly early, and more to the point, the arguments that he used are often also used by conservative theologians who do venture to declare a date for Luke's gospel, and that date is usually well prior to 70 AD. And the type of arguments that the conservative theologians use to place Luke early have a lot to do with little incidental details. For example, Peter J. Williams points out that the gospel of Luke uses wet and dry measures, you know, for measurements, as was the custom in ancient Palestine. He says that Luke knows that there's a sycamore tree outside of Jericho. He says that sycamore trees didn't really occur in the northern Mediterranean, so this had to have come from a local original Palestinian source. He says that the author knows of a toll collection booth outside of Jericho. He says that in Luke's version of the parable of the talents, there's a line that obliquely refers to Archelaus, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And the parable just happens to have been spoken right at the place where Archelaus had planned to build a large palace. And there are many, many arguments like this that can be made. And these are taken as evidence that this gospel wasn't written decades later by a, a Greco-Roman Gentile Christian who had no direct knowledge of the events and was writing from a place like Greece or Anatolia or Italy. But it comes from eyewitness accounts written by Palestinian Jews and companions of Jesus, or at least by someone who interviewed them in some capacity. Now, the first thing I'll say about these types of arguments, and we'll see a lot of them come up when talking about the gospel of John, it would not have been impossible for someone in the second century to obtain books or even what we would now call pamphlets that went into some detail about different parts of the empire and contained little incidental details like this. And really, only one of these books would have been sufficient to give someone like the author of Luke enough details to maintain some verisimilitude in his narrative. But the second and more important thing is that the ultimate roots of the written narratives about Jesus's ministry, by which I essentially mean the Q material, those roots appear to go back to Galilee. And every later Christian writing in this tradition seems to understand that. But by their time, the time of those writings, by Mark's time, Matthew's time, Luke and John's time, they appear to be cut off from those original roots. It's like what it says in Luke's gospel, a great chasm is fixed between you and us. While the Jesus tradition preserves some of these very ancient echoes of the Galilean adventures of the old kingdom preaching community, to the later gospel authors, Galilee and even Judea is more or less understood to be the mythical homeland of their religion. It's kind of like Atmora from the Elder Scrolls series, or Earth itself in the later foundation books. 
So the further in time that we get from these original Galilean roots of the Q community, the more and more errors pile up in the Christian text. Just like a human being going through the ordinary course of life with their cells being slowly exposed to the deleterious effects of the environment as time goes by. And this is what we see in Luke's gospel. Not the voice or even the echo of someone whose ear is to the ground of first century Palestine, but the voice of someone who's so far removed from those ancient roots of the kingdom preaching source that corruption has started to set in. Now, Luke knows that there was a toll booth in Jericho. I mean, that's great. So he was a Palestinian Jew, right? As a Palestinian Jew, did he not also know that people could not just randomly live in the Jerusalem temple as he says that the prophetess Anna does? I mean, does he not know that Anna's tribe, that of Asher, is located far to the north of Jerusalem? Why doesn't he at least explain what she's doing all the way down in Jerusalem? As a Palestinian Jew, did he not know that the Sea of Galilee wasn't in Judea, but instead in, you know, Galilee? Did he not know that Bethsaida was actually located in Golanitis and not in Galilee, like he says? At a certain point in Luke's travel narrative, Jesus has left Galilee aeons ago, but some Pharisees approach him and they say, go away and leave here because Herod wants to kill you. Did a Palestinian Jew not recognize that Herod Antipas had no jurisdiction outside of Galilee? What, are we to understand that the Pharisees are trying to just like confuse him, to trick him into going back to Galilee? Did a Palestinian Jew not know that it would be physically impossible to reach Jerusalem by passing between Galilee and Samaria? You know, picture for a moment, if you would, a big kahuna burger. On that burger, Samaria would be the meat, and Galilee and Judea, where Jerusalem was located, would be the two buns. Whereas the author appears to think that Galilee and Samaria were side by side. I mean, this is a tremendous geographical error. If you read something that said, I reached the state of Georgia by passing between North and South Carolina, you would reach only one possible conclusion. There's one conclusion that can be drawn from that statement and one only, and that is that the writer is not familiar with the region. The author of Luke may know about wet and dry measures. He may know about the sycamore tree. He might know about the fabled house of Archelaus. But in general, when we read his topography of first century Palestine, we find ourselves transported back to the dream quest of unknown Kadath. But I want to say something else briefly before moving on. You know, what we could say is that maybe canonical Luke, the redactor, the editor, maybe this bozo didn't know anything about first century Palestine, but he was clipping together sources. Now, some of these sources appear to know about Palestine. Some of them possibly could go back to the early first century. But the thing to consider about this is that even if those sources do go back to the milieu of early first century Judea, would we then still have any assurance that they were even originally about Jesus? I mean, they could have been stories or adventures about any random teacher or healer that were later co-opted and adapted. Maybe they were originally about John the Baptist. So that's the danger of this recursive reliance on early sources and traditions that are claimed to be behind the Gospels. A compiler who was putting together the Gospels might have come across some interesting tales of a Jewish preacher and miracle worker, of which there were by no means only one in the first century, and he might have thought, wow, these stories would have been great if they were actually about Jesus. And he thinks about it some more, and, he, and then he looks left and right with the shifty eyes, and he crosses out the name of the Jewish miracle worker that he saw on the page and writes Jesus. I mean, that's obviously a dramatization, almost a caricature. But the point is, just because a source or a purported source is early, it goes back to an early Palestinian provenance, 
does not automatically mean that it is authentic or relevant. Now, there's a fourth category of arguments that we have to discuss today. Now, because with Luke, unlike with Matthew and Mark, the theologians a lot of times feel the need, for some reason, to insist and argue that Luke wasn't written in the second century. And they do this for two Gospels, Luke and John. They don't often feel the need to specify this for Mark and Matthew. Uh, Why is this the case? It's because Luke and John are self-evidently the latest Gospels, so the theologians feel self-conscious and feel the need to defend not putting them too late. So as a result of that, we now have to talk about this category of arguments that they employ for why Luke supposedly can't be put too late and can't be put in the second century. So overall, like I said, we're dealing with four classes of argument. Fundamentalists putting Luke early, mainstreamers putting Luke early, mainstreamers putting Luke in the 80s, and theologians generally who argue that Luke can't be as late as the 100s AD, no matter where you put it. And this last one is kind of its own special category. Like I said, it usually pertains to Luke's gospel and John's gospel. Uh, It's a special defensive reaction. I also think it's engendered by the fact that the mainstream theologians themselves are putting Luke and John so dangerously close to the second century already, and they just want to ensure that no one crosses that threshold. Second century equals death to them. You know, and to defend this, they talk about things like Jerusalem being central to the author's depiction of Christian history, whereas in the second century, Jerusalem wasn't so prominent in Christian thinking. Now, in response to that, I quote Justin Martyr, who, by the way, probably did not have the Gospel of Luke and definitely did not have Acts of the Apostles. Quote, From Jerusalem, there went out into the world twelve in number. End quote. Quote, The Gentiles had never heard anything about Christ until the apostles set out from Jerusalem. End quote. Quote, In the same place in Jerusalem, you'll recognize the one you've dishonored. End quote. He was talking about Jesus there. The you refers to the Jews. Quote, He must suffer many things from the scribes and Pharisees and be crucified and on the third day rise again and would appear again in Jerusalem. End quote. You know, the one New Testament book that Justin Martyr certainly knows about is the book of Revelation. And here's how he describes it. Quote, a revelation that those who believed in our Christ would live a thousand years in Jerusalem. End quote. What we're seeing is that Justin Martyr, who wrote from about 150 to 160, is actually shown to have pretty much the exact same view of the centrality of Jerusalem as Luke does. And this, in fact, suggests that Justin and the author of Luke were contemporaries. Now, Jerusalem, for these guys, is where the curtain comes up. It's where Christianity technically originated. And to understand why, we can call up another early theologian, Irenaeus from his book, Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching, quote, and that these were to go forth from Judea and from Jerusalem to declare to us the word of God, which is the law for us, Isaiah says thus, from Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, end quote. In other words, for Luke, for Justin, for Irenaeus, for all these guys who operated after 150, Christianity began in Jerusalem because the Old Testament said so. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3 said so, and this was Isaiah's prophecy of what the world would be like in the end times. It's a similar refrain that we see throughout the later Jewish literature to the effect that Judaism and the temple would one day become the effective capital of the whole world. 
And God would, of course, have his chosen people, but the the Gentiles, the nations, would also readily submit to God's rule in those days. But the early Catholic Church recontextualized this, and they chose to understand it as a prophecy of what would ultimately happen after the advent of Jesus. And this is an important point, because the theologians who are arguing that Luke couldn't have been written in the second century appear to be arguing that Jerusalem is so important in Luke's gospel because the Christians had recently been there, and they recently had controversies with Jews there, and the events of Acts of the Apostles had recently taken place there. So on this, they're taking the most mundane reading possible. Whereas the significance of Jerusalem for Luke and for the early Catholics is a mystical one, a theosophic one, there are symbolic religious reasons for the centrality of Jerusalem in his myth, and we see that this mode of thinking lines up perfectly with the apologists and theologians of the late 100s AD, the time that I'm saying that Luke was actually finalized. But there's a lot more to say on the date of Luke and the hours waning, so let's leave the theologians for now. When we come back, I'm going to bring out some of my own points on the date of this gospel. Back after this. reading from the canonical gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have set their hand to compile a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning became eyewitnesses and servants of the word delivered to us, it also seemed fitting to me, having accurately investigated everything from the beginning, to write it down sequentially for you, most great Theophilus, so that you might recognize the certainty about the words in which you were orally instructed. That was a reading from the Gospel of Luke, the prologue, the very first words. He says, Parakalutheo, he investigated everything from the beginning. It can also be translated as followed everything from the beginning, but in the sense that it's used here, it means something more like examined. And he says that many have already produced a diegesis, a narrative about the events that have happened among us. I thought I would begin the discussion of my own date for Luke's gospel by pointing out that this prologue looks very much like an excuse to the reader as to why the gospel is appearing so late in the course of Christian history. The prologue is acknowledging that at the time it's being written, not only are there extant written gospels, but the author even seems to know of gospels that weren't written by eyewitnesses. They were written by servants or ministers of the word. And the author seems to be saying that even though all those books exist, he's going to set his own hand to writing a sequential and trustworthy account. 
and the way he differentiates it, the way he differentiates his product here, his marketing of his product, if you will, is that it's suitable for the education of a catechumen because the author has examined all things from the beginning. It would be like if you picked up a book about the Great Depression that was written maybe last year. I mean, how many books have we read on secular topics where there's a foreword or a prologue where the author says like, yeah, I know a lot of books about this have been written already, but I thought that my version would be useful because of X, you know? And that's what we see here. Are these statements the kinds of things we should expect from a first or even a second or even a third generation author? This is, without question, a long and retrospective approach that the author's taking, but I want something to be made clear. I feel sorry for Luke, that is, the redactor, the author of Canonical Luke, because I don't think that this poor guy ever even intended for his book to be perceived as a contemporary or eyewitness or even early account. I honestly think the redactor's intent was to just do a definitive gospel. I mean, he knows there's a million gospels out there. He suspects some of them may be very ancient. I mean, as far as he knows, or he's been told that at least, but he still thinks he ought to try his own hand at writing one. And he probably would have shit a brick if he knew that a few months later, some dope editor of the first New Testament would slap the name of a companion of Paul across the top of this thing and try to pass it off as a first century account. Because the prologue gives no indication at all that this work is early or even that the author intends for it to be taken as early. I said that if Matthew were alive today, he'd be like a moderate theologian in the style of Mark Goodacre. If Luke were alive today, he'd probably be spending most of his time in court, just suing theologians and apologists left and right for libel or slander. You know, he'd be horrified. I mean, he'd feel, and rightly so, that he'd been accused of fraud. I mean, it's not his fault that the editors of the first New Testament repurposed his work for their own ends. But now we'll have our discussion on the date of the Gospel of Luke, and I want to again emphasize that we're dealing with several different versions of this text that appeared before the canonical version hit the shelves. I would say that the proto-Luke originated sometime in the 140s. As for the canonical version of Luke, I would place it around 170, contemporary with my date for Acts of the Apostles, and I think the data allows for this. As I mentioned last time, the Acts prologue is worded in such a way as to suggest that the compiler of Luke and Acts is working from a pre-existing source, an earlier iteration of the Jesus story, rather than that he was compounding his entire work out of a mass of secondary tradition. But canonical Luke is late by any measure. Now, as we just talked about, we see it in the very prologue where he speaks of many previous attempts to have written the account of Jesus. We possibly see it even in the addressee, a man named Theophilus. I mean, it's been speculated, not without reason, that this could be Theophilus of Antioch, who became a bishop in the late second century. We see it in the regular use of the term the Lord to describe Jesus. It's almost as if the author is not comfortable unless he's being as reverent as possible. In fact, at one point, Jesus is referred to as the Savior. I mean, we see it in the clear identification of the followers of Jesus as the apostles. These people, to him, are an institution. Again, this is a long retrospective view. But much more importantly, the redactor of Luke no longer understands the controversies between the early Christians and the proto-rabbis or the normative Jews. Luke has often been seen as a Gentile-oriented gospel. Now, that's partly due to the author's more universal outlook, but it's mostly because he no longer seems to have a dog in the fight when it comes to the intra-sectarian disputes that Matthew and Mark so readily engaged in. 
To Luke, Judaism is a monolithic other. He even uses his own unique term for the generic opponent of Jesus, the nomo didaskalos, the teacher of the law. It is not a Jewish technical term. It is the kind of term that someone would come up with if they were an external observer trying to categorize a Jewish teacher. In a similar way, he likes to use the more generic term nomikoi, or lawyers, for Jesus' opponents. And speaking of titles, Luke no longer has anyone calling Jesus rabbi. And furthermore, there's no longer even any hint of controversy over the use of the term. It's a dead issue at his time of writing. Canonical Luke has a detached, almost academic view of the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. The two faiths have long been separated. He even misunderstands the famous wineskins metaphor that Mark had used. In Mark, Jesus had said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost and the skins, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And Luke follows Mark more or less word for word in duplicating that saying, but then he adds to it, and he says, Also, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new wine, because he says, the old is good enough. If Mark was talking about Jesus representing a radical break with the teachings of contemporary Jews, that sense has been completely lost in Luke. But that wouldn't be surprising, because as we touched on somewhat last time, this author, or this redactor, is generally clueless when it comes to Judaism. You know, he calls Adam the son of God, which was not really done by Jews. It's kind of something that an external reader of the Jewish text would extrapolate from them, but it's wrong. I mean, that's not how the first and second century Jews thought about Adam. Luke thinks that Jews name their children at the time they're circumcised, which they didn't. And we talked last time about other conflicts with Jewish tradition in the birth narrative. But back to the lateness of this gospel. Luke apparently doesn't care about the implications of an apostle of Jesus being called a zealot. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. You know, Luke has Jesus talk somewhat favorably about a group of Galileans who were slaughtered by Pontius Pilate. He apparently has no concern that Christians would be identified with Jewish rebels or rabble-rousers. And Luke's view of Jesus himself is highly retrospective. The Jesus of Mark and Q has been recast into a stereotypical, Hellenistic, heroic martyr. Luke has a completely different view of Pharisees than Matthew and Mark did, and we know that for those two, the Pharisees were stand-ins for the early rabbis. Luke has no interest in that conflict. In fact, whenever he's given any editorial license and is not constrained to follow Mark, he doesn't hesitate to actually cast the Pharisees as friends and potential allies of Jesus and of the early Christians generally. Other signs of Luke being late Jesus is asked the right way to pray, and the response that he gives comes originally from Q, but the way that Luke has phrased it, Jesus is now made to say, whenever you pray, say the following. In other words, by canonical Luke's time, prayer has become a matter of formula or liturgy. Luke knows that Simon is also called Peter, but he doesn't bother to explain why. It's just assumed by his time that his readers will already know that those two names refer to the same man. You know, it's a suggestion that other Gospels, like Mark, like John, are known to the author and to the readers. In his version of the Transfiguration story, canonical Luke, alone among the Synoptic Gospels, tells us that the companions of Jesus witnessed his glory. It's a term that's also used to describe the transfiguration in the very late New Testament book, Second Peter, not to mention the relatively late Apocalypse of Peter. 
by canonical Luke's time, it is self-evident to the author and to the readers that at the Transfiguration on the Holy Mountain, we are witnessing the epiphany of a god. So that's a bit of pious editing that canonical Luke has done, but it creates a problem because by depicting Jesus as a revealed god at the Transfiguration and choosing to go beyond Matthew and Mark at this point, yet still insisting on keeping the same passion narrative that Mark had, a huge inconsistency is created. And this is a key argument for the lateness of canonical Luke, because if Peter, James, and John have now in fact witnessed Jesus in his glory, it seems a bit sketchy that they still deny and abandon him in the hour and power of darkness at the end when he's arrested and put on trial. And this is also an indication, by the way, that the proto-Luke didn't have a passion narrative and that anything related to Jesus' death that we read in Luke was ultimately taken from Mark. What we can say, in conclusion, is that canonical Luke has a more Hellenistic outlook, a more Gentile outlook, a more universal or universalizing outlook. This is the product of the Catholic Church of the late 2nd century, immediately prior to the publication of the First New Testament. And in addition to all this, we can argue that Luke is a very late gospel through its possible use of Josephus alone. And Josephus wrote in the late 1st century, turn of the 2nd century. Scholars like Steve Mason have identified some key links between Luke and Josephus, and I think it's well-nigh indisputable that the redactor of canonical Luke, who also wrote Acts, I think it's indisputable that this redactor used Josephus. In the book of Acts, he makes a chronological mistake that could only happen if he was following Josephus. Josephus talks about a historical figure and then goes on a kind of a digression about an earlier historical figure. However, the Acts author represents that second figure as coming chronologically after the first figure. It's like if I said Kennedy was shot just like McKinley and somebody following my statement 50 years later and not understanding it takes that to mean that McKinley was shot after Kennedy. But there are actually many indications that Luke used Josephus. Like I said, the, the prologues of Luke and Acts closely follow the prologues in the Josephus book against Appion. Luke tells a story of Zechariah experiencing a revelation in the temple and then going out and being witnessed by a crowd. Josephus tells a very similar story about a very similar thing that happened to John Hyrcanos. The famous census of Quirinius, it's a chronological error in Luke, the census occurred too late for his Jesus timeline to make sense. Not only that, but the Roman Empire didn't have direct rule over Galilee in this period. But it's been pointed out that Luke and Josephus are the only two ancient writers that we know of who imbue this census with any kind of significance. And in Josephus' telling, it was the occasion for Judas the Galilean to oppose the Romans, showing his obstinacy. And perhaps Luke wanted to contrast this by highlighting the obedience of the Holy Family in submitting to the census, following God's plan. Jesus impressing everyone with his behavior in the temple when he's 12 years old, it's very similar to a story that Josephus told about himself in his autobiography. In fact, that story in Luke is written in a different style than the surrounding material. In the anchor commentary, Joseph Fitzmaier suggests that it comes from a separate source. I agree comes from some idiot who was cribbing from Josephus. In the John the Baptist section, when John preaches in the wilderness, Luke, uniquely among the gospel authors, adds extra material to John's preaching. And it is ethical material. It supplements the eschatological material that was already there in Luke's source. Well, Josephus had described John the Baptist as a good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. 
The redactor of Luke may have noticed that the picture of John in his Christian source was radically different from the picture presented by Josephus. You know, John in the Christian source or the kingdom preaching source was a kind of a, a doom preaching psycho. So Luke added some virtuous ethical teachings to better align John with his representation by Josephus. And speaking of John the Baptist, Luke, like Josephus, but unlike Mark and Matthew, only says that John was imprisoned by Herod. He doesn't necessarily say that he was executed. He leaves that to be implied. And that follows Josephus' account of John's fate. Also, at one point, Luke says that Philip was the tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis. His language here reveals that he's not exactly sure of the lands that Philip, in fact, ruled over. This may be because his source, Josephus, was also not clear on this question. In his book, Antiquities of the Jews, he lists the regions that Philip ruled twice, and they're different each time he lists them. Just like Josephus, Luke talks about the signs and portents that would accompany the fall of Jerusalem. And just like Josephus, Luke knows that an embassy was sent by the Jews to the Romans to beg them not to suffer the indignity of having Archelaus rule over them. In fact, he adds a reference to this embassy as an editorial comment into his version of the Parable of the Talents. I personally, I'm to the point where I grow weary of those who still argue that Luke's gospel and Acts of the Apostles didn't use Josephus because the evidence keeps piling up. And now what opponents of this idea like to say is that Luke and Josephus were in fact drawing on similar bodies of tradition. So I guess did both bodies of tradition not know what specific lands that Philip ruled over? Did both bodies of tradition happen to list the famous Judean rebels out of order? I mean, did both bodies of tradition give special prominence to the Quirinian census? So I like to think that the arguments against Luke using Josephus are a kind of a rearguard action by the apologists. But if we look at the Gospels as historical novels written in the style of Jewish scripture and set 100 years before the author's time, then it makes sense as to why Luke's gospel would make use of Josephus. It was necessary reference material. And if you do believe that Luke used Josephus, you then have to ask, if Luke truly possessed original, authentic material based on oral tradition emanating from the 30s AD, then why would he have needed to consult Josephus at all? Why would he have even needed to use those books? Because the Josephus material is not employed strictly for historical verisimilitude, it's fairly used to prop up the story in certain places. Like Gamaliel's speech in Acts, the entire plot point revolves around this citation of material from Josephus. But Josephus was especially important to the Christians of the late second century, the time in which Luke and Acts were written. They, having chose to set their narrative in the time of Pilate, really relied on Josephus for the historical background and the events that happened in Judea in the first century. He was the Virgil to their Dante, because without him, they had no organic connection to that time and place other than the faint echoes of the Galilean kingdom preaching movement that was preserved in their sources. Because Christianity at its core, at least the form of it that eventually became dominant, was a thoroughly Hellenistic operation. And of course, it, it didn't hurt that Josephus himself was somewhat of a pariah among normative Jews, having been viewed as somewhat of a turncoat and pro-Roman in his sensibilities, just as the late second century church was. And we see that in Acts of the Apostles and even in the Gospels. They never miss a chance to transfer blame from the Romans to the Jews. 
But we can hope that the idea of Luke using Josephus becomes more and more acceptable as scholarship continues to do its work. Now, in this series, we've been checking in with the radical critic J.V.M. Sturdy and his views on the late dates of the New Testament text from his book, Redrawing the Boundaries, published posthumously. Let's see what he has to say about Luke's gospel. First of all, J.V.M. Sturdy believed that Matthew used Luke and came after Luke. I disagree. But he does his own triangulation of the date of Luke, and he says that, first of all, it was clearly written after 70 A.D., and he says that that's because it outright states that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, and we talked about that. And he then says that Luke had to be written before the 130s because the heretics Basilides and Marcion supposedly made use of it. And just like I said in the last episode, we have to be careful not to fall into this trap of accepting that the ancient heretics wrote commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. We really have no proof of that. Not to mention that these ancient heretics are usually put unreasonably early as well. People like Valentinus, Basilides, and so on. And I said that way back in episode one when we discussed the fragment of Quadratus. A lot of times the church writers will claim that the ancient heretics all lived during the reign of the emperor Hadrian, that is from 117 to 138. And they seem to be claiming that because to them, that was the time period immediately after the death of the apostle John. And it was therefore the first time period in which the original apostles were no longer living. But there's no proof of these guys operating that early. Like 125 AD for Basilides is frightful. I think we can infer from the writings of Justin that Valentinus, Basilides, Marcion, they all operated in at least the 150s, possibly 140s. But again, that in and of itself is not proof that they possessed the canonical gospels. Like I said last time, it was probably their later followers who were reacting to the newly published gospels, writing commentaries on them, likely after 170. But JVM Sturdy puts Luke's gospel at about 110. And he talks about some elements of Luke that suggest that it's very late. There's the legendary tales of the birth narrative. There's the effort to tie John the Baptist to Jesus in terms of Jewish prophecy. And there's all the unique parables and miracles in Luke's gospel, which Sturdy sees as being embellishments of what the author of Luke found in Mark. So we find that here, I actually disagree with Sturdy pretty significantly. I was in line with him on Matthew, but we diverge fairly strongly on Luke, both on the date and how it was composed. But now we should talk about some anachronisms in the Gospel of Luke, things that in and of themselves suggest a late date. First of all, Luke chapter 1, verse 28. Talking about the angel Gabriel, he says, Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. It's a text that's beloved by the Catholic Church, and it's an apparent reference to the book of Judith, chapter 13, verse 18. It is not impossible that the book of Judith dates to the reign of Trajan. It's kind of a fringe theory, admittedly, but it's something we should at least mention. But when it comes to finding actual anachronisms in Luke's gospel, we're on fairly secure ground. I mean, we can talk about Jesus doing a Haftorah reading in the non-existent town of Nazareth in the first century, it would appear that the Haftorah reading was not customary until the second century, and this anachronism can be found in the earliest layer of Luke, as we said last time. We could talk about proto-Luke's Jesus encountering a centurion at Capernaum. There were no Roman soldiers stationed in Galilee at the time of Jesus. It was not under direct Roman rule. Now, how do the more conservative New Testament commentators try to explain this away? Well, they say that the centurion was really the leader of a band of mercenaries. 
Well, some mercenaries, I mean, they were apparently kind enough to build a synagogue for the local Jews, according to the story. I mean, here I thought that like a band of mercenaries camped in your town, led by a moonlighting Roman general, you know, it sounds like something out of Fallout New Vegas. It would quite possibly be one of the very worst things that could happen to an ancient small town outside of being actually sacked by an enemy, but these are apparently good mercenaries. You know, they're moderate mercenaries. They don't eat up your resources. You know, in fact, they add to them. They invest in your town by building a synagogue. Now, I mean, this is just a reflection of the fact that at the time this was written, Roman troops were stationed all over this region after the Bar Kokhba War, and the author doesn't recognize that things would have been vastly different in the first century. A lot of these regions at that time were still being ruled by client states, including the locale where this story is set. And I thought that the author of Luke knew that. I mean, he mentions a few client kings. But we can also talk about Luke chapter 20, where it says that Jesus was preaching the gospel in the Jerusalem temple. That sentence was written at a time where the reader would have been familiar with the activities of Christian missionaries as a matter of course. We could talk about Luke's prologue where the writer appears to know that there are other written gospels out there that weren't written by eyewitnesses. Some were, some apparently weren't in the understanding of Luke's prologue. And we know that in Justin Martyr's time, when he talks about the memoirs of the apostles, his belief is that those all come from direct eyewitness materials and he first published in the year 156. Yet in the prologue to Luke, we even see a perspective shift from Justin's position. You know, instead of the things about Jesus being written solely by eyewitnesses, we now hear that books about Jesus exist that were, quote, handed down to us by those who from the beginning became eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke in this prologue appears to have an even more advanced view of the gospels than Justin Martyr did. We can talk about things like Jesus in Mark and Matthew quotes Psalm 110, and in Matthew and Mark, he attributes it to David. When it gets to be time for Luke to share this story, he adds something to it, which is that the quote is now said to be from the book of Psalms. And that type of language, citing the books of the Bible by their known titles in a kind of an offhand fashion, that's something that started to become a trend only in like the mid-second century. We can talk about Nazareth. Uh, I've already alluded to it a few times. There's controversy over whether Nazareth was even settled at the time the Gospels are set. It seems rather that it was settled by the Gospel author's time in the second century, and they projected the Jesus story onto it as a means of explaining the forgotten origin of the strange title Nazarene that was attached to Jesus in the early sources, the Galilean sources. And we can talk about the fact that in Luke's gospel, one of the followers of Jesus is named Simon the Zealot. Of course, the Zealots were a group that emerged shortly before the first Roman Jewish war in the 60s AD. So we're immediately suspicious. Now, Mark and Matthew, instead of calling Simon a Zealot, call him Kananios, which is kind of like a bastardized Greek version of the Aramaic word for Zealot. I think that the ultimate source of these lists of the 12 apostles originally goes back to that kingdom preaching movement that I've discussed before. I think that that community possessed a list of legendary early leaders, just like the normative Jews did with their famous legendary rabbis of the past, the Tanaitic teachers. And because the kingdom preaching movement operated well into the late first century, you know, it turned out that one of these men, one of their heroes, was indeed associated with the zealot movement. And that's why it made its way into their sources and into the Gospels. It comes from a late source, a post-70 AD source. 
But one way that Christian commentators have tried to explain this anachronism is they say that, well, obviously this Simon guy wasn't an official member of the Zealots, you know, when he was actually following Jesus in 30 AD, but he became a Zealot later in life. And by the time the Gospels were written, he was known by then as a Zealot. And so they used his later nickname in these books. It's like, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ridiculous. Because to be a theologian and to believe this, you would have to believe that the gospel authors were too ignorant to filter out an obvious anachronism, which they're usually not willing to do in any other case. Now, another excuse they try to give as to why Simon is called a zealot is they say that, well, maybe this Simon guy was, in fact, just really zealous. And he was known as a zealot, you know, because he was so pious. Well, kitchen table this for me and tell me how this works. If this random apostle, Simon, was particularly known for being zealous, where does that leave guys like Peter, Andrew, John, not to mention Jesus? I mean, were they not particularly notable for their piety? I mean, come on, this is a simple anachronism, and it seems to have been inherited from the kingdom preaching movement, whose origins did indeed go back to the time of the war. The gospel authors didn't see a problem with it, and maybe Mark did if he was in fact trying to hide it by translating the word zealot into Aramaic and then like back translating it to Greek. But back to other anachronisms, we can also talk about Mary in the gospel of Luke saying that all generations will count me blessed. This is actually a reboot of a quote from Genesis where Leah says, the daughters will call me blessed. So Luke has altered the quote. And in such a way that implies a kind of reverence for Mary, maybe even a kind of a worship of Mary, such as we'd better expect in the late second century. I mean, the quote itself is suspicious, even in, in its wording. All generations will count you blessed. Only makes sense if significant time has passed since the events taking place. You know, the author may have recognized that this was an awkward formula, but it was probably much more important to him to glorify the mother of Jesus sufficiently. Now, that overrode any other consideration. This is basically his one chance to do it, and so he did it. We can also talk about Luke using the Old Testament books of Chronicles as a source, and those books were not yet considered canonical in Judaism in the mid-first century. They grudgingly became more and more accepted within Judaism by the year 100. We can talk about Luke's Jesus resurrecting the widow's son in a story that closely parallels not only the Elijah-Elisha cycle, but also something from the life of Apollonius of Tyana. Now, the book about Apollonius by Philostratus, that was written in the third century, but Apollonius himself apparently died around 100 AD. And it could be that these stories and sources that Philostratus himself repeatedly claims to have used were also available to the author of the Proto-Luke to assist him in writing this resurrection tale. We can also talk about the Gospel of Luke, assuming that it's a common Jewish belief that Elijah will return to herald the Messiah. And this belief is actually unattested in Jewish sources from the first century still. And lastly, I want to check in with Robert M. Price and his book, The Pre-Nicene New Testament, which that and Loisy's two main books are what I reflexively recommend to anyone who asked about what books they should read to get into this stuff. Now, he covers the Gospel of Luke, and he identifies some anachronisms and other indications of a late date that we didn't even cover yet. Of course, we talked in the last episode about his belief that there's a kind of an encratite source hiding behind Luke's Gospel, specifically in the material about Joanna. 
And this Joanna character looks an awful lot like the chaste women converts of the late second century Acts. But Robert M. Price points out that in Luke's gospel, any reference to the saving power of Jesus' death is systematically eliminated. Because for the author of canonical Luke, it is the church that dispenses salvation through baptism. Now, this is a sign not only of a late date, but a very late date, a date at which the church is an established and authoritative institution. And we don't see the outlines of that elsewhere until the late second century and the time of the church's reaction to the Montanist heresy. Price points out that where Mark had Jesus at his trial predict that his audience will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, Luke changes this to say simply that the Son of Man will be seated there from now on. And Price says about this, quote, After all, the Sanhedrin, too, are long dead, and the coming of the Son of Man and the kingdom of God hasn't materialized. And there are many more instances of things like this, and in sharing them, Dr. Price is conveying the findings of the theologian Hans Konzelman, who was probably the most significant scholar of Luke of the last century. Any one of these observations would be enough for an entire episode. Suffice it to say for now that their presence in this gospel raises questions if we're looking at a document that was supposed to have been written only a scant 40 years after the death of Jesus, when indeed some of Jesus' own contemporaries might in fact still be expected to be living. So we have commented quite amply, I believe, on the dating of Luke. But lastly, we need to talk about the title of this gospel. Of course, the text itself does not supply the name of Luke anywhere in it. But fundamentalists, as we said, hold to the belief that the author was Luke, the companion of Paul. Some, even in the mainstream, are also willing to accept this traditional attribution of Luke's gospel. The reason being that Luke's gospel says outright in the beginning that it's second generation, at least. And so to many theologians, it's conceivable that a companion of Paul at the end of his life could still be a second generation Christian. What I mean is that given the prologue, you know, this gospel is not claiming to be especially early, and some theologians therefore find it plausible that a companion of Paul began writing it sometime in the 60s, maybe completed it later, completed Acts even later. There's nothing really preventing that, according to them. So whereas many theologians balk at the traditional attribution of Matthew, we find that far less of them do so at the traditional attribution of Luke. But the usual mainstream view is that, like the other Gospels, this book was originally anonymous, and then the church used a sort of David Trobish detective method to assign its title, in that they first noticed that the prologue of Acts referred back to the prologue of Luke, thus determining that those two books were written by the same person. And then they saw that right up until the end of Acts, the author is still breaking into the first person. So this is clearly someone who was attending on Paul almost up to the very end of his career. So they came up with a simple solution to determine his identity. They looked at what they considered the last of Paul's letters ever to be written, which, if you're going off internal clues, would be 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul depicts himself as being imprisoned and close to death. And in the text of 2 Timothy, these ancient Christian literary detectives encounter the following line, quote, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me, end quote. And so if only Luke was with him in his hour of trial, it seems to imply that the account of Acts that covers the period all the way up to his imprisonment would be written by this man, Luke, who was present and had the time and the agency to write these books. 
Here's what I'll say on Luke's authorship. I think that what I've just outlined is most likely close to what happened. The early church, it, not so much that they inherited an anonymous gospel, but someone of some prominence in the late second century church literally put Luke and Acts together. This is who I've been calling the redactor. When canonical Luke and Acts were created by the redactor, the gospel still lacked a title as far as we know, and so a title needed to be assigned. And when the compilers of the New Testament were looking to assign the title, they themselves chose the name Luke because they had decided that the gospel should be presented as written by a companion of Paul. And so they chose the name of the very last human being that they know to have accompanied Paul. A better question, though, than how they came up with a title would be why would they insist that this gospel had to be written by a companion of Paul? Like Acts is one thing, you know, the we passages, it's reasonable to expect a companion of Paul to have written that book. But to have a companion of Paul also write the gospel, it causes problems. Because in doing this, you are now infiltrating Paul and his line of tradition into the Mark and Matthew line of tradition in which Mark's gospel comes supposedly from Peter, and Matthew's gospel comes from another eyewitness follower of Jesus. But now you're choosing to inject a third party into this nice, neat setup. And not only that, it's a third party who's clearly made you uncomfortable in some way. I mean, you've already had to stash Paul's letters in between the gospels and the Catholic letters. You've already had to rewrite the entire character of Paul in Acts of the Apostles to neuter and neutralize him. Why would you risk messing up your carefully constructed gospel tradition by throwing in this X factor of Paul and making him involved with it. I think it's because one of the key reasons for the release of the New Testament and its creation was so that the early Catholic Church could co-opt the religion and the sect that traced its origin to Paul. The only reason that you would want to have a Gospel of Luke that's attached to Acts of the Apostles is because some orthodox document needed to be attached to Acts that was written by a companion of Paul so that the readers of this compilation would get the impression that Paul endorsed a gospel that was not substantively different from the ones that the church already accepted as coming from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. It's quite a coup, in fact, and Irenaeus in particular takes heavy advantage of the fact that Paul's companion is listed as the author of a gospel that's so similar to Matthew and Mark. He does not shut up about it, in fact, and it also helps the early church to further explain something that had been kind of a tricky problem in the late second century. Paul in his letters will sometimes say that he has a gospel, you know, according to my gospel and so on. I mean, he, what he means by that is the substance of his preaching and message. But there's evidence that some Christians in the late 100s AD took this statement to mean that Paul was talking about a book. They took him literally as in Paul is actually indicating that he is teaching from a written book called a gospel. But by putting the title according to Luke over this book and claiming that it was written by Luke, the follower of Paul, that's another way of answering the question that Paul's letters are raising whenever he mentions his gospel. And you know what this seems geared toward, and you'll forgive me for being somewhat frank, it seems somewhat geared towards dumb people at the time, like less perceptive Christians of the late second century. When the more educated, the more enlightened Christians see Paul using the term gospel, you know, they would understand that in the sense it's intended, a kind of metonymic term that refers to his overall message. But the less perceptive might read those statements as referring to a book. And if you're the early Catholic Church, you want to forestall any claims that statements like these might be referring to a kind of a lost gospel of Paul 
that someone can then produce at any time and weaponize against your church. I mean, there were no shortage of pseudonymous writings by or about Paul in the church of the year 200, and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian both attest to that. But now, by attaching the name of Paul's companion to this book, now whenever someone claims that Paul's gospel refers to some other book, you can simply respond by saying, actually, we do have Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of Luke. So you can take a hike. There are some other theories about the author's identity that have been put forward over the years. Uh, there was a great radical critic in the early 1900s called Bernard Sage, who wrote under the pen name PC Sense, thus making him the first IT consultant in history. He believed that Luke's gospel was originally Marcion's gospel and was written by a man named Lucanus the Marcionite that Tertullian and some other early writers refer to. I don't know. I don't see where that fits, really. Some have said that the author could be a man named Lucius, whom Paul refers to in Romans chapter 16. I mean, it is altogether possible that this Lucius from Romans 16 is actually the same Luke as referred to elsewhere in Paul's letters, but regardless of that, this doesn't change really anything about what we know of the gospel's provenance. I mean, except for the fact that in Romans 16, Paul refers to this Lucius as a kinsman, but to me, arguing that the gospel of Luke was written by this Lucius from Romans 16, it's essentially a matter of rearranging furniture. It's not especially effective. But before we close out for today, we have to do a reading from the New York Times from October 16th, 2001. A new DNA analysis gives tentative support to the belief that the remains in an ancient lead coffin are those of St. Luke, traditionally considered the author of the Third Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. Dr. Guido Barbugiani, a population geneticist at the University of Ferrara, Italy, has extracted DNA from a tooth in the coffin. He concluded that the DNA was characteristic of people living near the region of Antioch, on the eastern Mediterranean, where Luke is said to have been born. Radiocarbon dating of the tooth indicates that it belonged to someone who died between 72 A.D. and 416 A.D. End quote. What they're referring to, this, this skeleton, is actually a holy relic. It was declared to be the body of Luke in the 4th century, and it was moved to Constantinople back when they were ransacking the entire empire to build that city and to populate it with saintly artifacts. And a brother of the show, Jerome, from whom we read last time, also mentioned that. I mean, I guess I like that this geneticist got paid for this, but uh, uh, make of this what you will, I suppose. One thing I will say is New York Times, October 2001. Was this really an important story given what else was going on at the time? You know, everyone now talks about how, you know, before 9-11, it was one of the slowest periods for news and like world history or something. You know, they were focusing on shark attacks. Well, a month after 9-11, here they are talking about the gospel of Luke's skeleton, you know, the author's skeleton. It's interesting. I've gotten more than one request to talk about holy relics on this show and their provenance, but I confess, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Today, we've gone over the arguments of the theologians on the dating and authorship of Luke. And I would say that the list of anachronisms in Luke's gospel alone should be sufficient to torch these arguments. But aside from that, 
Every indication that we've seen is that canonical Luke is far from being an ancient text from the initial generations of Christianity. We continue our New Testament journey, and we ask whether we can have any confidence in the conventional view of the date of Luke's gospel. Well, we can never be 100% confident in anything, but I would rather bet on the side of Luke being late than early. And in the name of St. Candida, we declare the gospel of Luke to be late and spurious. Thank you for listening. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. What other stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality? 